One of the first lessons I took from the past was this. The only immortality any of us can hope for is that of a story. I am, shall we say, passionate about history. I damn near bubble with it when someone is foolhardy enough to lead me into the subject. I've always loved it, even when I struggled in school. History felt accessible to me in ways that no other subject did. It was open, endless. At any point, I could find something interesting to learn about, some new fact to store away for later. History was my happy place, for all that it is full of misery and death and injustice. As a kid, I found comfort in that endless churn of time. Life goes on, even when it's horrible. Good things happen. People live, people die, and the story we all write a small piece of continues on. There is joy and freedom in this sense of human smallness, I think. I don't matter. You don't matter. None of it matters. Except that it does. And we do. And maybe someday in the distant, unimaginable future, a little girl will sit and read a DK eyewitness book about the 2020s and gaze curiously at a photo of you. I was that girl. I am still that girl. (laughs) I love to know. I love reaching back into the murkiness of time to hold the stories of people long dead in my hands. I love digging through records and get a thrill when I find traces of average people simply living their lives in the past. I love learning above all things and sharing what I know with others. Now here's something you probably don't know about me. I actually hate being called a know-it-all. Like really, truly do. I used to get called that a lot growing up and still do occasionally. It happens when I get too excited and say some fact about so-and-so, about the history of what's it and what all that no one asked for. I don't share it because I want people to think I'm smart, but because I love history. It only occurs to me too late that not everyone does, and that exploding with enthusiasm about it can come off as condescending or otherwise irritating. I've never in my life meant it that way, and in fact never pursued a career in history precisely because I believed I simply wasn't smart enough for it. That is why it's taken me this long to write this series, I think. Even today, when I'm in my comparatively much more confident late 20s, I worry that I am simply not qualified to talk about a subject that I love so much. I am, of course, not exactly qualified to talk about anything, really. But this isn't going to stop me today. Or tomorrow. Or the day after that. Hi and welcome to the Kingdom of Thirst podcast. My name is Abigail Kelly, and this is the first part of a four-episode miniseries. I'm an author, podcaster, and a bookseller. Beyond those dubious titles, I have only my outrageous enthusiasm to back up any claims made in these episodes, which will be shorter than the average KOT nonsense. Each one will be an audio essay, which you can read on patreon.com slash works by Abigail, if you so desire. 
first, we will begin with some background. Exactly why you should care about some dusty-ass poetry, and then we will cover the characters in their own episode, and lastly, the story itself in the final part. Now, to begin. I have imagined a dozen different ways to begin this miniseries. How can I sell you on this seemingly entirely unconnected to romance novel subject? How do I introduce the scope of this work? How in the world do I, an art school dropout who has never taken an ancient literature nor creative writing class, begin to discuss one of the most important, if not the most important story in history? Usually, when people talk about Gilgamesh, it's framed in two ways. Either with a poignant scene in the dust and heat that obscures the ruins of what was once the world's first empire, or with a vignette featuring the enthusiastic Englishman George Smith, who studied fragments of clay found in the very same dust. Those are perfectly valid ways to start, I think. The first option gives you not only a sense of space, but of time. That great binding rope that connects you and I and Gilgamesh and Enkidu. The second anchors us in the remarkable. That awe-inspiring miracle that is the epic's very existence, fragmentary and sometimes contradictory as that may be. Look how amazing it is, that vignette urges. That you know these names, these people, all because some weirdo got a wild hair and decided to dig through a drawer of clay shards. Again, I, I think both beginnings have merit. You should imagine the lush river valley where the Tigris and the Euphrates joined to create a hotbed of civilization. You should imagine great stone walls, rowdy marketplaces, the scent of cooking lamb and leeks and beer. You should picture the flash of beaten gold and lapis lazuli so bright the eye struggles to take in the blue of it. You should also imagine a ruin and the inexorable passing of time and the exoticism of mysterious wedge-shaped markings baked into clay never intended to survive thousands of years. Similarly, I don't blame people for fixating on the moment when George Smith a man who had only an 8th grade education at best, realized that those mysterious markings told the story of a flood, a dove, and a man who would become immortal. It's one hell of an image, right? <laughs> I think the reason I struggled to begin my dive into the epic was actually because, up until a few years ago, I didn't know enough to imagine, well, anything related to Gilgamesh. This was not because I hadn't heard of it. I feel like everyone has heard some rattling of Gilgamesh's tale. Most people don't know what he was famous for, but they probably know the word epic is often attached to his name, and that there is some connection to that term which, like the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, sticks in the unmolded brain, the fertile crescent. Gilgamesh is therefore old, unfavorably associated with boring poetry, and relegated to the corner of the mind that says, um, yeah, I know what that is. No more thought necessary. So yeah, I knew about it. 
I remembered learning about the Fertile Crescent in sixth grade and staring at a grainy black and white map about an inch wide showing the snaking pathways of those vital rivers. I don't recall ever learning about Gilgamesh specifically, though I'm sure his story was mentioned. I don't really blame my teacher for this, though, since I'm pretty sure that the subject was massively overshadowed by the fact that the Greek unit followed, and that meant I eventually got to play the Oracle of Delphi for an afternoon of pure middle school revelry. I'm sure you can imagine how much I relished the chance to give my classmates cryptic wisdom from a stool, friends. Yes, I did wear a toga. I think it's funny to look back on that enthusiasm, knowing what I know now. Personally, I couldn't give one honeyed fig about Greek history these days. It's neat. It's important. I love that people love it. The stories are great. But after 20 plus years of hearing the same stories over and over and over, I'd much rather explore other subjects. Ditto for Roman history. Listen, I know they were sexy and bloody and sloppy as hell, but I've heard it all. And please don't even get me started on the tutors, okay? Initially, I never considered that there were large swaths of prehistory I knew next to nothing about. After all, hadn't I stared at that inch-wide, poorly printed map? Civilization began on a riverbank. People farmed wheat. Wheat and beer and taxes led to writing. And then people moved out of that delta because of... something. Uh, to go to Greece, where democracy and art started, and... On to Rome, where someone played a fiddle, and on and on until some jerk with a boat got lost in the Pacific. It wasn't until I became interested in the legacy of writing that I bothered to take a second look. Like George Smith peering at a cracked clay tablet, hunting for proof that the Bible was more historical record than allegory, I looked at the story presented to me on a silver platter, positively agog. The history of Sumer, Akkad, Babylon, and those unnamed people who first settled into those green stretches between silty shores is mind-bogglingly fascinating. Even writing this, I struggle to articulate how amazing I find it. It is distant enough to warp perception. I will attempt to provide touchstones in this mini-series to help you there. And yet, jarringly modern in its stories, the voices of its people. Their problems were our problems, their joys, our joys. And yet they were the first, the first cities, the first empire, the first libraries, the first named authors, the first epic. Before we begin to explore what the hell the Epic of Gilgamesh is and why you, romance lover, should care about it, let's talk about the remarkable world that was Mesopotamia, shall we? Like I mentioned before, most of us are taught that Mesopotamia was the cradle of civilization. Another elementary buzzword, but really means the stretch of land that is now Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, some of Egypt, and parts of Turkey and Iran, where civilization magically sprung up. Someone figured out how to farm in that good, good brown stuff, and then another person said, Ah, heck, Jerbathia, that sure does look better than walking around all day looking for berries. So Gorb settled down next to Jerbathia, and Jerbathia's cousin, Derbathaniel, moved in on the other side, and so on and so forth. 
Someone, perhaps Gorb's descendant, Gorb Ezekiel, left a pot full of weed out in the rain and didn't clean it out for a few days. He was notoriously lazy, that Gorb Ezekiel, only to discover that rotten wheat juice is actually pretty tasty. The demand for nasty, chunky wheat juice led Gorb Ezekiel's son, Gorby, to build a house bigger and better than his neighbors. He had the most resources to look after, didn't he? The most beer to store, the most food to keep out of the sun, the most wives to keep happy. It made sense that he would make a big old house and that he'd bribe the rest of the town to help him build it with said beer and food. Whoops! Gorby has made the first palace, and suddenly history has its first asshole in a big shiny hat. A king, more or less. This is the popularly accepted narrative. It is not a particularly auspicious beginning, but it's probably not far off from the truth. People go where the food is. Anyone who's ever made barbecue, or set a pie to cool in a windowsill, or took advantage of an open bar can attest to this phenomena. However, it's tempting to imagine these people as primitive. As the first, they must have been, right? Clever, certainly, but societal progress is slow. Certainly, they would probably not be terribly recognizable, societally speaking, to us. Here's a touchstone for you. The first settlements in the River Valley predate the invention of pottery. Here's another. The collapse of Mesopotamian civilization is generally accepted to have fallen around 539 BCE. The rough estimate is that the stirrings of civilization began at least 10,000 years ago. The great city of Uruk was founded in 4,000 BC. That means that 4,000 years before Christ was born, 2,300 years before the last mammoth died its lonely death, 1,400 years before the Great Pyramid was built, the world of Gilgamesh was already ancient. It is a world away from a world. A civilization that rose endured for thousands of years, and then vanished. Its cities were as complex as any Greek example. Most of the River Valley would not actually be farmable for most of the year without incredibly elaborate irrigation systems, for example, to say nothing of the urban centers and religious infrastructure. Its people were just as sophisticated as we are today. I think by the end of this miniseries, that you will not need me to remind you <laughs> that the people of Sumer, Akkad, and Babylon were as intelligent and aware of their world as we are. No one who wrote what they wrote, not simply in poems nor in hymns, but in the constant flow of letters, didn't live rich lives. They were as nuanced as you and I, maybe more so, frankly. My money is on them probably being a hell of a lot more clever, too. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to come up with writing. <laughs> Not like language, but actual writing. Any baby with enough motivation can make language. It takes a series of incredible leaps to make lines or squiggles or dots transform into words. It's a sort of alchemy, isn't it? This magic that makes nothing into something, transferring knowledge and experience across time and space and culture, our world would simply not exist as it does today without it. 
full stop. That is not to say that stories began with writing. They did not. We have probably been telling stories to one another since the day our grunts of alarm and delight began to hold meaning. Stories were passed down to explain the world, to teach the young and comfort the old. They were told to amuse and to frighten, too. Here's a fun bit of trivia for you. The Epic of Gilgamesh is a bit patchwork in its translations, not simply because of the fragmentary nature of the tablets on which it was preserved. It is actually translated from two separate languages. Most of the poem is written in Akkadian, a Semitic language, whose various branches encompass nearly 330 million speakers today. However, select poems are written in Sumerian. I hear what you're saying. Abigail, these languages come from the same place, so they're probably, like, mostly similar, right? You just said that Akkad and Sumer are, like, in the same zone. I did say that, didn't I? Well, I've got news for you. History is complicated as fuck. That's why it's fun. See, Sumerian isn't a Semitic language. It's not even the same family as Akkadian. It's actually its own isolated family. As in, there are literally no languages like it today. How is that possible, you ask, when it sprang up from that same little crescent of land? Well, Sumerian is believed to be one of the oldest languages in the world. It is also believed to have arrived in the Fertile Crescent after its settlement. To illustrate this, please imagine a campsite populated by entirely Icelandic speakers suddenly getting an influx of Chinese speakers. Over time, as the two languages mingle, they would begin to trade words back and forth. But ultimately, they would always be different. They come from two completely different sources. Now imagine that there is no record of where Chinese came from, and no one living in the past 2,000 years spoke it until someone figured out how to parse the lines on some baked clay. Now you understand how wild it is. So Gilgamesh is written in two languages, Akkadian and Sumerian. Akkadian was the common language, the language of the natives, and Sumerian was the language of the elite, the interlopers, for thousands and thousands of years, until Sumerian gradually fell into entirely ceremonial use, and finally, extinction. Think Latin used in Catholic mass, but otherwise is functionally dead. Please disregard the fact that billions of people in the world speak Latin-based languages today for the sake of this comparison. Thank you very much. Akkadian survived, and after the Bronze Age collapse, continued on in the genetics of many, many more languages. The bulk of Gilgamesh is written in it, probably because the poets and the priests who copied and recopied the tale, editing as they went, were probably low-level folks using the language of the people. Personally, I find Gilgamesh's movement from story only the elite could read to story written in the everyman's language. Really lovely. <laughs> I like to imagine Sunliki Onani, the poet responsible for the most complete version of the epic we have today, stooped over his tablets in Ashurbanipal's legendary library, painstakingly pressing his writing utensil into cold, wet clay. I like to think that he went home at night, walking the tight, winding streets of Nineveh, to be with his children, 
I like to imagine he would tell them the verses he copied that day, speaking fluid, lyrical Akkadian to delight them with Gilgamesh's trials and his failures. Language is extraordinary. It is humanity's superpower. Writing, though, that's simply miraculous. Scholars believe that writing began as a way to keep track of livestock, agricultural production, and, inevitably, taxes. Three tiny drawings of bushels of wheat meant three bushels of wheat. Three cows meant three cows. Two bushels of wheat, a cow, and an arrow pointing to, say, a crown meant that those things ought to go to the king if you know what's good for you. Gradually, those symbols got more abstract, more symbolic, and began to represent more than just the thing, which is called a pictogram, by the way, but a particular sound. Once that weird squiggle meant ah or b or e, writing was off to the races. Suddenly, you didn't just have to talk about taxes. <laughs> you could talk about who that king was, where he lived, who he ruled over, which god he worshipped, and taxes. It was a natural leap. I think, to use a tool designed for fact to make fiction. A beautiful example of this is the Epic of Gilgamesh itself. Like many mythic figures, Gilgamesh probably existed. He was probably a king of the Sumerian city-state of Uruk, son of Lugalbanda, born around 2350 BCE. He ruled over a city-state that was already ancient, and he probably did some bodacious shit. There is some evidence to suggest that he built Uruk's famed walls, another first in a world where true warfare had only just been invented. And there are tablets that claim that when he died, his people's grief was so great that they diverted the rivers in order to bury him below the life-giving water. Interestingly, this is also the rumored ending of Ulrich I, king of the Visigoths and sacker of Rome in 410 CE. He too is believed to have been buried beneath the confluence of two rivers, accompanied by his favorite horses and several tons of silver and gold. Not really relevant, but cool, right? Anyway, back to Gilgamesh. There is definitely evidence to suggest that the hero of our epic really lived. He appears in the famous Sumerian king list, for example. It's exactly what it sounds like, and has been used with the help of handy, regularly appearing comets to provide dates for historical events. Likely, he was a king who did some cool stuff, and like many heroes of prehistory, was deified after his death. This practice is incredibly interesting on its own, by the way. Really makes you think about how many gods simply started out as particularly talented or beautiful or intelligent folks people just couldn't stop talking about after they died. This seems to have morphed into the practice of making people saints and prophets today, I suppose. Though I do believe there's an interesting story to be written about someone who currently works at a Quiznos in Albuquerque becoming a god. We are going to take a deep dive into Gilgamesh himself in the next episode, so I won't go into much here except to say that he is both the hero and the villain of this story. A great king, a real man, two parts god and one part idiot, he is an extremely complex figure jammed into a poem you can read in about an hour. For all that his image has been distorted through the lens of almost inconceivable time, 
He is a nuanced, strange, infuriating, and begrudgingly lovable hero. And that, friends, is where I should stop to explain why you should care about the epic of Gilgamesh as much as I do. For one thing, it fucks! Did that sell ya? I find it hard to believe that it didn't, but in case you need a bit more convincing, hand to Gilgamesh. I don't think anyone loved to talk about blowjobs and sex as much as the Mesopotamians. The poem opens with seven straight days of fucking in the wilderness. In the hymns to Inanna, penned by the first named author in history, Enheduanna, priestess of Inanna and princess of Ur, there are several pages dedicated to Inanna learning the carnal arts, not least of which is a very thorough section devoted to going downtown. As an example, here is a section of The Courtship of Inanna and Dumuzi, translated by Diane Wolkstein and Samuel Noah Kramer in Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth, published in 1983. <laughs> Buckle up, folks. I'm about to use the word vulva a lot. Inanna opened the door for him. Inside the house, she shone before him like the light of the moon. Dumuzi looked at her joyously. He pressed his neck close against hers. He kissed her. Inanna spoke. What I tell you, let the singer weave into song. What I tell you, let it flow from ear to mouth. Let it pass from old to young. My vulva, the horn, the boat of heaven, is full of eagerness like the young moon. My untilled land lies fallow. As for me, Inanna, who will plow my vulva, who will plow my high field, who will plow my wet ground. As for me, the young woman, who will plow my vulva, who will station the ox there, who will plow my vulva? Dumuzi replied, Great lady, the king will plow your vulva. I, Dumuzi the king, will plow your vulva. Inanna. Then plow my vulva, man of my heart, plow my vulva. At the king's lap stood the rising cedar. And that's not all, folks. I struggled <laughs> to pick which scene to highlight because there is so much. This includes a notable section of Inanna and the God of Wisdom, in which she brings all knowledge given to her in a drunken stupor by her father to man. He gave me the standard. He gave me the quiver. He gave me the art of lovemaking. He gave me the kissing of the phallus. He gave me the art of prostitution. He gave me the art of speeding. Interesting that the art of war is mingled with the art of lovemaking there, isn't it? That's classic Sumerian though, y'all. If they loved only two things, it was sex and war. All right, one last one, because I can't help myself. From the courtship of Inanna and Dumuzi. He shaped my loins with his fair hands. The shepherd Dumuzi filled my lap with cream and milk. He stroked my pubic hair. He watered my womb. He laid his hands on my holy vulva. He smoothed my black boat with cream. He quickened my narrow boat with milk. He caressed me on the bed. 
Now I will caress my high priest on the bed. I will caress the faithful Demuzi. I will caress his loins, the shepherdship of the land. I will decree a sweet fate for him. Okay, so maybe the sex doesn't do it for you. Can't relate, personally. I find the idea of our most celebrated and ancient story, the one in which many people point to in order to prove the events of the Bible being incandescently horny, fucking hilarious, but I get it. So if the sex doesn't do it for you and the history doesn't tickle your lobes like it should, then might I offer you the romance. That's right. The Epic of Gilgamesh is a goddamn romance. Or at least, it's a love story. A paranormal, enemies-to-lovers, faded mates love story with a real doozy of an ending. It's a story of two men made for one another, literally, prophesied to love one another until their literal dying breaths, and who forsake the advances of goddesses and the will of the divine to remain that way. Pretty choice cut, right? Also, despite the fact that this is going to be a four-part miniseries, I really mean it when I say that it's short. The term epic is misleading, I think. Fatally so. It is epic in scope and format and impact, but it's not long. You really can read it over a cup of coffee or listen to it during your commute. I urge you to do so. If not before we embark on this journey, then afterwards, so you can truly understand the emotion that ripples out across thousands of years to reach us. In romance novel terms, it's jam-packed with tropes. I'm talking faded mates. I'm talking born sexy yesterday. I'm talking enemies to lovers. I'm talking let's hold hands while we slay this monster, which, yeah, technically isn't a trope, but I'm keeping it. You're probably starting to get the picture here. I don't just want to talk about Gilgamesh because the world in which it was created fascinates me endlessly. I want to talk about it because I believe the modern tendency to wash away romantic love from the text is inherently wrong. You simply cannot. To do so is a concession to our extremely narrow view of sexuality and partnership in the past, limited as it is by our modern hangups. And in the broader sense, eliminating the romance of Gilgamesh removes its vital place in our history and the very root of literature. Romance matters. Companionship matters. The stories we told around the fire sipping chunky beer through reed straws are at their core the same as the ones you read on your Kindle or whatever. Sex, love, loss, hope. I'll warn you now that Gilgamesh does not end in a happily ever after. It is not, to our modern sensibilities, a romance novel. I'll break the news to you now, so you can take the next three episodes to process and accept your grief. Enkidu, the sweet, feral boy and Gilgamesh's literal soulmate, dies. Like I said, there is no happy ending for our lovers. The epic does not go on to say that they were reunited in the afterlife. In fact, there is a suggestion that Enkidu ends up in one of the worst places in Death's Domain. A dark room where the dead cannot see. Where they eat dirt and drink clay. Where they wear feathers like birds and sit in silence. Forgotten. We don't know what happens to Gilgamesh. Our only certainty by the end of the poem is that he dies his life lived, and his people better off for being ruled by him. 
this kind of sucks. <laughs> of course, you and I want there to be a happy ending here. We want Enkidu and Gilgamesh to live their lives loving one another and making terrible, sexy choices. We don't get that. We don't even get the certainty of a happy future for Gilgamesh. Only that he lived well and did good. And when he passed, his people moved rivers to honor him. Still, still, it is the love between these two men that makes the story memorable. People like to go on and on about how it's the original hero's journey. Gilgamesh and Skywalker, am I right? They make breathless connections between it, the Bible, and the historical record. Yada yada. But the flood, they say. But the morality of the flawed king is journey to accept both glory and the inevitability of mortality, they say. But the symbolism of Enkidu, the wild man who represents the ancient way of nomadic living, and Gilgamesh who represents humanity's slow adoption of subsistence farming and sedentary life in urban communities with rigid hierarchies, currency, and specialist trades, they say. There's a lot of hemming and hawing over all that, but to my eyes, the romance seems like the only redeeming quality of both Gilgamesh himself and his story. If not for the love and the crushing, incomparable grief that is its twin, the epic would simply be a story of an asshole with too much power, terrified to die. Like our own assorted modern pasty-faced union-hating jackals, he would be but a footnote in the long story of humanity. Like our billionaires, he would probably pay people to keep him alive as long as possible hoping that surviving off of lentil slurry and other people's plasma will fend off death and inevitably greet that great ending with a whimper. Not a great story, I would say. It is the love that makes Gilgamesh great. Both the story itself and Gilgamesh's character. He is redeemed through love. It is love that brings joy and color to the wedges pressed into wet clay. It is love that transcends time and space and insurmountable odds to resonate with us. It is love that brings Gilgamesh and Enkidu to you today. Thank you for listening to the first part of our Epic of Gilgamesh mini-series. You can find all the resources I've used for research listed in the show notes. If you'd like to check out more of my work, you can also find the links to my books in the notes. My newest book, Empire, featuring a retired vampire assassin and his delicious gardener, releases January 10th and is up for pre-order now. Check it out if you like. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we'll take the long and dusty road to Uruk to meet our troublesome hero, one part human, two parts God, Gilgamesh himself. Kingdom of Thirst is a member of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find all of our episodes and tons of new podcasts to listen to at frolic.media slash podcasts.